Welcome back, guys. Let's get back to Troponins and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad, unstable Angina. Come on, Steve. We need more of an intro than that. Well, you apparently won't let me sing. My heart will go on. Nope. And Treya says I can't do any more random movie references. Okay, fine. So for anyone that missed our last episode, we suggest listening to it now. Someday we'll probably release one where the puns and movie facts are edited out. But for now, you'll have to suffer through it. Or for some of you, maybe we'll have more edited in. <laughs> Torture. Just a thought, Janine. No, 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 no. Okay, so we'll give you a quick second to check out our last one. And long enough? Great. So welcome back for those of you that went back to part one, puns and all. Last time we talked about key concepts in ACS or acute coronary syndrome, like what is unstable angina and why the heck should we care? More specifically, we covered why we like to talk about and use the Timmy score. Along with the awesome carrots 65 mnemonic. No more mnemonic, Steve. Okay. We also <laughs> talked about how we use scores like Timmy to determine if a patient with unstable angina is at high or low risk of MI or death. So today we're going to quit playing games with the heart score and let us show you the shape of the heart. Okay, no Backstreet Boys today, please, Steve. Words never heard in any civilized society. <laughs> but seriously, I thought that we could talk a little bit more about Pathophys today. Anything but your singing, Steve. This is hurtful. Why would you say oh, no. that? <laughs> you can sing all you want. Keep going. No, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Janine Knudsen. And I'm Steve Liu. Welcome to Mind the Gap. And our second episode on unstable angina. Again, many thanks to Dr. Norma Keller, Chief of Cardiology at Bellevue Hospital and Assistant Professor of Medicine at NYU for peer reviewing this episode while on vacation. And don't forget to check out our brand new CoreIM website, coreimpodcast.com, for tons of great med-ed tools and podcasts. What a smooth shout out to Foam. <laughs> Today, we're going to take our conversation about unstable angina to the next level. We're going to cover, one, why is it important to interview our patients about the history of their chest pain, and how does it relate to pathophysiology in unstable angina? And number two, how have high-sensitivity troponins changed the way we think about ACS? And finally, number three, how can we use both clinical history and pathophys to risk stratify our patients and determine management? You think there's a score for that? Good question, Steve. All right. So, Steve, I know you like to take deep dives into history. Are we going to do that today? Well, I am so glad you asked, Janine, because we can't talk about unstable angina without talking about Dr. Eugene Bronwald, who wrote tons of super important articles on unstable angina. It's important to note that when he wrote about unstable angina in Steve's favorite decade, the 1990s, what else? he used it as a catch-all term, including both patients with positive biomarkers, what we now call NSTEMIs, and patients with negative biomarkers, what we now call UA. And so in that context, Brownwald published a seminal article in circulation called Unstable Angina, a Classification. And this continued a decades-long journey, which we will now try to summarize into a description of pathophysiology and clinical syndromes in about five minutes. <laughs> but actually... Brownwell tried a few ways of categorizing patients to figure out who was high risk of MI and death based on clinical history and pathophysiology. As a tie-in to our last episode, Brunwald and his group, the Timmy Group, quantified this risk in the UAN STEMI Timmy score. So today, we'll first go through the clinical histories, and then we'll connect them to the pathophys. We recommend checking out our graphic on the CoreIM website for you to follow along. Brunwald describes three types of chest pain severity, 
basically three different types of histories you might hear from a patient coming here with chest pain. But we really actually only care about two of them. So the first type of chest pain is new onset or worsening anginal symptoms, but no chest pain at rest. This is sometimes called crescendoing angina. Brownwald later connected these symptoms to the pathophys of progressive mechanical obstruction, which is from what he called severe organic luminal narrowing, such as progression of coronary atherosclerosis. Which, depending on the clinical context, can either be slowly progressing, like in the course of weeks to months. Progressive, stable angina. Or it can be rapid in onset, like the closure of an already critical lesion, causing an MI. Yikes. The second type of chest pain is angina at rest within the past 48 hours. AKA the the danger danger zone. This corresponds to the pathophys of non-occlusive thrombus that develops on pre-existing disrupted plaques. It's partially occlusive, so not a full STEMI, which is caused by a complete thrombotic occlusion. But just to be clear, we are not covering two types of the pathophys that Brunwald included in his original classification. Those are dynamic obstruction like Prince metal angina and demand type anginas like type 2 MI from inflammation or infection. And you also may have noticed we omitted the third clinical syndrome of chest pain, which is chest pain at rest that resolves at least 48 hours before presentation. That's because it doesn't really fall into the definition of ACS. Because it's just not acute. So back to those two clinical syndromes and pathophys is, you might be wondering now, well, why do they matter? Don't both lead to cardiac ischemia and wouldn't that just be just generally bad? Well, Brownwald's argument was that slowly progressing plaque causing crescendoing angina was somewhat more steady and predictable. Whereas chest pain at rest from a non-occlusive thrombus on a disrupted plaque is unpredictable and therefore more dangerous. It can clot off at any time, causing total occlusion or STEMI. These two different pathophyses also look different on cardiac catheterization. There's a really interesting study called coronary plaque disruption that gets right at this. You have a study for everything, Steve. I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so they looked at patients who suffered an MI, but actually got a cath beforehand. A third of them had preceding obstructive coronary disease at the site of their MI, meaning that their infarction was probably due to rapidly progressive luminal narrowing of their known obstruction. The remaining two thirds had only mild CAD on their previous cath. So their MIs were probably due to unpredictable rupture of that small but vulnerable plaque. Oh, how sad and lonely. (laughs) Oh, they're just misidentified and misunderstood, Steve. Nice. So let's get even nerdier and go back to our basic science days. I remember getting tortured by discussions of two types of thrombus, Janine. You may have heard these called red thrombus for fibrin-rich and white thrombus for platelet-rich. Oh, the nightmares are coming back. (laughs) In progressively worsening atherosclerosis, we see a thick fibrinous cap on a growing plaque. This is called red or fibrin-rich thrombus. In acute plaque rupture, we'll more likely see a vulnerable plaque with a thin, immature cap covered by white or platelet-rich thrombus. It's like a teenager going through its awkward growing pains. It's young and it doesn't know any better. (laughs) So we've now given you two classifications of chest pain with their presentations, pathophys, and plaque or thrombus type. The prior study we discussed with pre-MI caths found that there was a two-to-one ratio of plaque rupture versus progressive luminal narrowing. This is relatively close to what Brunwald reported seeing at the clinical level based on patient symptoms. And patients with plaque rupture are more likely to be sick. Brunwald found that one-third of these patients will present with positive troponins, so active ischemia. Compare this to only 10% of patients with crescendoing angina. So symptoms and underlying pathophysiology correlate. How cool. Super cool. Yeah. 
But briefly, here's one thing to consider. With both of these pathophysiologies, because you get some occlusion of the coronary artery, you should probably get some myocardial ischemia. So in this day and age, you'd expect that an ultra-sensitive troponin would be positive. So you're saying that all of these patients would now be classified as N-semis? So that's what I thought. But interestingly, there still seems to be a subset of patients with classic symptoms of ACS that for whatever reason don't have a positive troponin, even despite cath findings that are consistent with coronary artery occlusion. So Brunwald addressed this exact dilemma in his 2013 article with David Morrow, aptly titled, Unstable Angina, Is It Time for a Requiem? But it's really good. Brownwald and Murrow described the trajectory of unstable angina. Initially, it was meant to represent the zone between stable angina and MI. But over time, as we became better and better at detecting troponin, more cases got reclassified as NSTEMI instead of unstable angina. So the percent of patients with ACS who fall in the bucket of unstable angina has shrunk significantly. They almost suggest that in the future, we might discuss removing the diagnosis of unstable angina altogether. To paraphrase the paper's conclusion, quote, We have now come full circle in our definition of symptomatic ischemic heart disease. Patients with ischemic heart disease will now be divided into the original two groups, angina pectoris and acute MI. Some cardiologists even propose that maybe cardiac markers might become the only definition for ACS going forwards. But it's very unlikely. So combining our quantitative tests with our qualitative clinical history is still pretty darn important. We should be clear. We are not saying flat out that unstable angina doesn't exist. We're just enjoying these debates. Yep, nerd fights. (laughs) The rise in high sensitivity troponin should just make us think twice when we meet people with chest pain syndromes but negative troponins. So let's bring this home, Steve. Great. All this pathophys and troponin stuff aside, what do we actually do with the patient in front of us? Should we page cardiology in the middle of the night and ask them to urgently take the patient to the cath lab? Definitely. Wake up all of your cardiology fellows. <laughs> Sorry, friends. What if we re-stratified patients and use that to guide our decision making? Much better idea. I bet we can make a score out of that. So let's circle back to the Timmy score from our last episode, which we apply to patients with unstable angina or NSTEMI to estimate their risk of major adverse cardiovascular outcome or MACE in the next 14 days. What we haven't mentioned yet is how we're going to use it to guide clinical management if we want a cath. So it turns out patients with moderate to high risk, so Timmy scores of three points or higher, may actually benefit from urgent cardiac cath. This comes from the Tactics Timmy trial, brought to you by who else but Dr. Braunwald's Timmy group, which randomized about 2,200 patients to early cath or not. The control group still got cathed if they didn't improve on medical therapy alone, or if they had a positive stress test. Both groups got treated with antiplatelet and cholesterol-lowering medications. The trials showed that patients who got early catheterization had better primary outcomes of death, MI, or rehospitalization for ACS in 30 days. Remember, the combined outcome is also called MACE. The MACE rate was 7.4% in the test group versus 10.5% in the control group, which equals an absolute risk reduction of 2.1%. Nice. Good math. And this effect persisted at six months with MACE rates of 16% versus 19%. Weirdly enough, this was all driven by MI and rehospitalization outcomes. The mortality rate actually didn't differ that much between the two groups. And also interesting is that just because patients got cathed, it doesn't mean they actually got revascularized. Only 60% of patients in the intervention group got a stent or a cabbage versus 36% in the control group. It's important to note that there was only one subgroup that didn't show a benefit from early revascularization compared to control. That was actually the 25% of the study population that had negative troponins and fell into our favorite gray zone of unstable angina. Just to 
often make a note, this was particularly true for women. This group had no clear improvements in outcomes with early cardiac cath. And for these folks, you know, people with UA, the study suggests performing a stress test after stabilization to help determine if their chest pain really was from coronary occlusion. If not, they're probably not going to benefit from any revascularization. To summarize, the TIMI score is a tool to identify high and low risk groups, aka those who benefit from rushing to the cath lab in the first 48 hours versus getting a stress test for more information first. But full disclosure, the AHA guidelines actually suggest using the GRACE score instead of the TIMI score. Wait, what? Yup. I feel betrayed. (laughs) (laughs) Timmy, you weren't worthless after all. (laughs) No, no, we're just using it because we figured we're all more familiar with the TIMI score from our last episode. It's just a good example to make our point about risk stratification. So that's it for today. So let's recap. We reviewed a few different angles through which you can view unstable angina. Number one, clinical symptoms correlate to pathophysiology, cath findings, and even outcomes. A patient with slowly worsening atherosclerosis and progressive anginal symptoms is lower risk than a patient with unstable, disrupted, vulnerable plaque causing angina at rest. (laughs) Two, high sensitivity troponins may completely change how we think about classifying ACS. But we're not there yet, so we're going to keep unstable angina around just for now. Just know that most patients who would previously have had UA are probably not being called NSTEMIs. And number three, in our last episode, we talked about how quantitative scores can help you decide who not to cath. But both the TIMI and heart scores can also be used to anticipate who might benefit from revascularization. Patients classified as moderate or high risk should have some benefit from early cardiac catheterization, whereas low-risk patients probably aren't you know, at least based on the tactics Timmy trial. Those low-risk patients, mostly patients with unstable angina, should get a stress test after they're stabilized to risk stratify them further. So that actually is all for today on our podcast. See you next time. If you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app that you use. It helps other people find us and lets us know how we're doing. So follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can also send an email to hello at coraimpodcast.com, all one gigantic word. As always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. And fell into our favorite gray zone. Of of a- yelling at me. I was like, what did I do wrong? So make you listen to this on the recording. Like a- Have a pretzel, Steve. No. <laughs> uh, I want to have my bed. <laughs> I know, right? Take a cab home. Ooh. All right, you're good. Hurrah. Never again. I <laughs> know.